Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Welcome to the program, everybody. It is Michael, and at the top of the show, I want to say a big thank you to all of our listeners, and especially those that share the podcast with others. Just this past week, we went over the 200,000 download mark, and in the podcast world, that's a pretty big deal. You get a spot on Mount Rushmore, and uh, that's pending government approval for us, but truly, it's a big deal, and I'm uh, so grateful for how the podcast is impacting lives. Just after the last episode, I have heard from some people um, giving feedback and just saying what the podcast has meant. So thank you. On today's program, I am sharing with you our newest staff person, our intensive clinical soul care specialist, Kelly Gray, who is a licensed professional counselor in Colorado with 17 years of experience in psychotherapy. She is a self-proclaimed growth nerd and Enneagram expert who writes and speaks around the country on the Enneagram, personal transformation, and counseling. As a therapist, Kelly loves to gather all of the tools and wisdom that she can to help people take the next step into being more fully human and free. She has a wicked sense of humor, and in her work, she specializes in working with couples and individuals that are impacted by trauma or struggling with anxiety, depression, or issues around attachment and intimacy. Now, I have to say that uh, having Kelly at Restoring the Soul is a real catch. I have known her since 2001, And uh, her coming on board here has been a process of a couple of years of conversation, and she really decided to take that leap over the last couple months. So we at Restoring the Soul are just so very, very excited to have Kelly on board and to have her as part of our staff. So let's jump in now to my conversation with Restoring the Soul's newest counselor, Kelly Gray. Kelly Gray, welcome to the podcast, and welcome to Restoring the Soul as the newest staff member here. 
thank you so much. I'm really happy to be in both capacities. And I'm happy to be here talking with you. My goal for this conversation um, is to let listeners get to know you, but in the process of getting to know you and hearing about your background and some of your expertise, also Mm -hmm. just to be encouraged um, by what you do and maybe even some of your journey. So let me just start out by asking, um, you decided to be a counselor at a young age. Tell me about how that came into being. Great. I was born in not totally rural Alabama, but small town Alabama. And at some point in early high school, I really don't remember the moment, but I realized that I was riveted with the field of psychology. And my mom, who wasn't always responsive about things like this, um, but she went out and bought me a couple of used college textbooks. One was an abnormal psych book, and the other one was a, I think it was just cognitive. No, it was intro to psych. And I would sit in my bed and I would read those. And at 15 years old, that's my first evidence that I have of the time in which it happened. But there was an aptitude test. I was in 10th grade at um, Fort Payne High School. And I have in my little teenage bubbly handwriting, you know, the what do you want to be question. And I wrote psychologist, PhD in psychology. And um, my dad was not from a family that had really gone to school much. And so no one, I didn't know a PhD in, in our circles. And so that's where I set my sights on it. And going off to college, I was told I would jump all around. And then I told my parents that I was not going to waste a dollar or an hour of their time. And um, I wasted a tiny bit, but not very much. <laughs> Isn't that part of the college experience where you, you, know, you have to waste time and money? Yes, but I was such a serious, I was a serious child when it came to that I would, part I of would my say life, actually. Deciding your career at 15, that's pretty serious. Now, did you, like, I got a chemistry set when I was a kid, mm-hmm. maybe before 15, mm-hmm. and I started doing experiments. So at 15, with those textbooks, did you start doing Rorschach tests on family members or things like that? You're bringing back a memory. I did Rorschach tests. I did. Wow. I made them you kind made of like own, a craft. You I made did your own ink spots. I did, and um, and I started trying to interpret everyone's dreams. That was the other thing that I did. You must have been a joy to live with. I'm sure it was a joy. <laughs> I still am a joy to live with, Michael. What was the? I'm, and that's that's why you're part of the staff here. Oh, fabulous! Because that was the number three criteria on the uh, the job description. Wonderful. You must be a joy to live with mm-hmm. and have a letter of reference. Mm-hmm. So you went on to go to undergrad where? I um, was forced by my parents to go to a community college, though we begged to not go. My sister and I both did. And then from there, I transferred to Mississippi State University, who had an excellent psychology program. And I would volunteer for all of the whatever the grad students had going on, whatever tests they needed to give, whatever experiments they were recruiting subjects for. I signed up for all of them. And so I was just a psych nerd. How have you avoided growing up in Alabama and then school in Mississippi to have uh, a Southern accent? Because you sound very Midwestern. Some people hear it and some people don't hear it. And my husband is sad that it has kind of gone away because he was hopeful that I'd have a little bit more of a Southern drawl. But even when I lived back there, um, 
So in community college, I worked at an insurance agency slash tackle shop. And insurance agency <laughs> slash tackle shop. The conversation's getting more interesting. I did. So you could get whole life insurance <laughs> and bait uh, to go catfishing mm-hmm. in Alabama. Mm-hmm. You could. Folks, that is insurancetackle.com. <laughs> they still exist. Okay. So, um, lovely family. And, um, but I would answer the phone and it was in this small town in Alabama where the accents were a lot thicker. It was a smaller town than the one I was raised in. But I was also, I was raised by a kindergarten teacher and she was always correcting my speech. So anyways, I'd pick up the phone and say, thank you for calling. How may I help you? And I'd hear, girl, where are you from? On the other end of the line. (laughs) I'd say, I was born here, sir. (laughs) How can I help you with your insurance and or tackle shop needs? Unbelievable. Mm Mm-hmm. And how many people, just rough guess percentage-wise, would call for tackle versus insurance? Five percent, ten percent. Okay, there are some really, there's some good fishing nearby, actually. Uh, it's it's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of uh, I used to be a young life leader. See, and so to to be talking with somebody who actually encourages and fans the flames of my rabbit trails and my my ADD digression. Unfortunately, I'm this big is on that. Very very scary, but. I was a young life leader, and we're driving up to upstate New York from Ohio. And true story, there was a ice cream stand that said, Cones, Shakes, Malts, Chainsaws. <laughs> so you could, you could uh, you know, buy operational equipment to be a tree trimming business and experience dairy confections <laughs> along the way. So... Ultimately, mm-hmm. you went on to become a student at Denver Seminary, and I, I actually did. met you. I remember the day because it was nine eleven. It was the day that the the planes hit the towers, and the mm-hmm. school did not close uh, the university. Um, the switchboards were jammed all day, and um, I remember that semester because I had been a professor for five years at Colorado Christian, left there, and then became an adjunct at Denver Seminary. I was teaching as the white male who had never been outside of North America, I was teaching the multicultural counseling class. Mm-hmm. And that was a very, very You taught me everything class. I know about cultural sensitivity. Yeah. I'm just kidding. There you go. But you were in that class I the was. first day. You graduated uh, that year mm-hmm. or so. And you've been practicing now as a licensed therapist for close to 20 years. Yes. So tell me about the work that you do and you've transitioned from a private practice counseling in the kind of traditional hour at a time weekly mm-hmm. appointments. Tell me about what you've done in that regard. And um, then down the road, I want to hear about what drew you to this idea of intensive counseling. When I talk about my work, the way that my heart and my gut just fill with warmth and joy. It's crazy that it still does that at 41 years old, the way that it did when I was 22 years old and um, beginning my master's program. And so um, I was just driven by this deep passion and such a longing to understand. And I started my internship and was terrified and then was hired on by um, a large group counseling practice in town. I was so grateful that they had me. And um, I was only 23 at the time, a baby baby. And um, so I basically had to start with anybody who would see me was pretty much my intake 
protocol procedure. And so mostly people younger than myself. And so I cut my teeth on adolescent work, which is hard work and very complicated work and brings in the family system. And I started falling in love with the moms and then the moms would come in to see me on their own. And then over the as the years went by, I I did resist seeing marriages for the first decade of my work. I said, there's too much going on in the room. I had a few that snuck in and I did see them. And I was fairly honest about feeling like I was a little bit out of my depth, but they didn't care. They were just there. They wanted to do their work and we clicked and connected. So I worked with them and they taught me a lot. So but mostly in those earlier years, it was adolescents and young adults and then transitioned to couples later. As a former youth minister, I think some of the hardest counseling work is Mm -hmm. with adolescents. Mm -hmm. You know, they're in that developmental stage between Mm -hmm. being kids and adults, and there's all of the, you know, hormonal issues. But it really is hard work unless you're specifically called to that. Um, So just in terms of how you have to learn and to be adaptive and to kind of meet people where they're at, Mm -hmm. I found that. That, that was really good training for me, but I'm also definitely not called to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had kind of a conviction, though, as I moved into marriage therapy and got some wonderful marriage therapeutic training that, you know, you know how good training works. It trickles down to absolutely any population and it trickles down to my interactions with my husband and kids at home. Um, but. I had just this strong conviction that I was not supposed to let go of teenagers because I could do it because I could connect with them. They liked me. I thought, okay, well, until I'm 100 years old, maybe I'll always have to have a teenager somewhere that I am that I'm working with. And they teach me things about culture that I would not know otherwise. They teach me because our culture is changing so quickly. That's a really good point that uh, at this point at 54, I in some ways don't even try to keep up with mm-hmm. uh, what what changes so quickly for my kids. And I mm-hmm. remember thinking, you know, my parents are really out of step. They're still listening to, you know, Bing Crosby and, and things like that. And I'll never be that way where I don't know my, my kids' stuff. And it's uh, a lot to stay on top of. Mm-hmm. And so for you, you have young children. Mm-hmm. You'll be prepared. I'm prepared. I feel like I know what they're bringing they're bringing to me and I don't feel scared of it. That's where I'm really different from a lot of my friends who are mothers of younger kiddos. They feel like, okay, I can do this early stage where it's a lot of holding and the crying and the snacks and the naps. But those later years feel so scary. And I've said, oh, God, give me the later years where they're fluent English speakers. And uh, I understand those power dynamics of what they need to just go and when they need to just fall and have a mistake and have a problem. And when they need me to step in, and I know how to play my chips with that, I've been cashing in chips on adolescence. I build up chips, build up chips, build up chips by listening, listening, listening. And, oh, yeah, baby, I'm so sorry. That's so hard. That really sucks. I'm so sorry. That's so hard. And then I'll say, you can't do that. (laughs) And then they'll do it. They'll listen because I have stacked the chips. And they're like, oh, I can't lose all the goodies because she gives me so many goodies. So now she's demanding something hard. Okay, I'll give it to her. So my prayer for you as uh, the dad of a now 21-year-old and an almost 17-year-old is that that does transfer because it does. But then there's also the dynamic that I know you know about, but that when they are yours, that it's so much harder to be in that place of listening and not reacting. But 
um, I know some people that do live in utter fear of those teenage years. Mm -hmm. I do. I I do really try to keep my expectations low so that I can be pleasantly surprised. So if I plan on meth and teen pregnancy, maybe I will be delightfully surprised. <laughs> meth and teen pregnancy. So set the bar low mm -hmm. and then exceed it. Good job, sweetheart. Another yeah. glowing day. Yeah. At Arapahoe High School. There's an old story. I just feel compelled to share this, but you know the what does it mean to celebrate the fact that someone's only using meth three times a week instead of <laughs> every day. Mike Iaconelli told the true story. Uh, one of one of the men that was a friend of his worked in the inner city in Los Angeles, and he led several gang members to Christ. And this guy hadn't seen him for a couple of weeks, and he said, hey, how you doing? And the kid gave him a high five, and he said, I only shot one person this month. <laughs> <clears throat> and is that, you know, it's a radical idea, but as a youth pastor, urban minister, do you give them the high five back and go, awesome, you only shot one person. But in their mind, it was mm -hmm. like they they literally um, was like, hey, I know Jesus now. I should probably not do this all the time. We don't know how many times that kid used restraint, had his hand on the weapon, had his target in mind. No, not this time. And if you're listening one. and going, where in the world is this going? It's all tied together. There is a golden thread of logic and truth mm -hmm. that uh, you may have to listen four or five times before mm -hmm. you, you find that thread. But It's like scripture. Yes. Back to the adolescent mm -hmm. issue. Mm -hmm. um, you went on from those early days at that counseling center mm -hmm. to develop a kind of specialty. Mm -hmm. So tell me about over the last couple of years what you've particularly emphasized in your work with people. Yeah. Um, I couldn't find my specialty for a while and said, I'm just a generalist. I'm a generalist. And everyone said, you've got to specialize. You've got to specialize. But I, I would get kind of bored with overly specializing in things. And But the things that really, the trainings that came my way that were the most um, riveting to me were trauma-based, attachment-based. I love EMDR, which is a technique for uh, more rapid trauma processing that involves um, the body, a lot of introspection and somatic experiencing. And I have found that to be so globally useful for all of my So clients. say more for our listeners that may have heard the word attachment and always thought, what is that when you say doing attachment work? Because um, that's often heard or thought of, yeah, that's for adopted or institutionalized people. But we've learned so much more about attachment that it really is, as they say, from womb to tomb. It's mm -hmm. an issue. Mm -hmm. So tell me about what that is and what some of your work looks like. My work with attachment, when I started studying more attachment theory, it was helping me really make sense of my clients' reactions of pulling away or becoming really dysregulated and aggressive towards others. And I had kind of picked up on the fact that I could teach people the right way to respond, but when they were upset and escalated, they weren't able to just downshift into these perfectly appropriate responses. And so learning about attachment and helping them make sense of and um, kind of have some categories and definitions around the way that they were connected with in their early childhood has an impact on your nervous system wiring that manifests itself in all of your relationships throughout your life, especially your most intimate relationships throughout your life. And as a result of that, people 
the research says about 60% of people have what's called a secure attachment. And the research says that, but whenever I'm in a group of therapists, it's always wink, wink. It's more like 40% and 60% don't. But we see, you know, we see a sample of people that are more often hurting, and those are the issues. But there's secure attachment, and then there's anxious attachment pattern or style. Tell tell me about that. It's more clinging. So it's, I'm afraid you're going to leave me. It's the the baby that doesn't have object permanence, where when mom walks out of the room, the baby panics and falls apart and says, she's dead. She's never coming back to me ever, ever again. And then she comes back and, oh, hi, you're back. Great. Right. So are. even from infancy forward, some of that is hardwired into the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and is codependency related to anxious attachment, do you think? Yes, I think so. And I know I'm not an attachment expert, but I think well, you've heard my caveats enough. Yeah, but. no, this is, well, I mean, you may not be an expert in terms of having a degree from Harvard, but uh, you've done work on this for the last five years. And yeah. yesterday you told me all about the training of, what was it called, the neurobiological, what was the training that you did, the PACT? Oh, yeah, yeah, the psychobiological approach to couples therapy. It's yes. a very attachment-based so you actually theory. have a lot of yeah, training. Yeah, it's more, but yeah, area. probably 10 years probably of working with attachment. I think it's when I'm aware of the people that are north of me in the field, I feel very deferential towards people that I'm still learning from. But sure, yes. Well, I can take one basic concept that I read on a fortune cookie somewhere mm-hmm. and then talk about it for an hour as if I'm an expert. Mm-hmm. So don't assume that I know more than you. Okay. So there's secure attachment, there's anxious attachment, and then there's avoidant mm-hmm. attachment. Attachment, and mm-hmm. what does that look like? You can't use the word, well, it looks like avoiding. <laughs> they pull back, they pull away, and um, that's more, I think our stereotype, men and women do it, of course, but our stereotype would be shut down male. So the, the dad or the husband who's really non, nonverbal, really low verbal, very low emotional, um, Affect it doesn't give you a lot of handles to kind of grab onto of who who this guy is and what he's about. And wives are typically in pursuit of them and kind of chasing them around a bit. And they are rich greeting and withdrawing. And it just doesn't yeah it doesn't work very well. It creates a frustrating dynamic for all in the home. And then there's an ambivalent mm-hmm. attachment, which can be both or disorganized. Disorganized. Some yeah. people call it that, mm-hmm. um, depending on which author you read. But that's where it can be a combination of both, or in the case of the disorganized, basically no capacity to have any kind of an intimate relationship. Yeah. Well, they have a shifting capacity. They'll seem like they have a capacity. I've definitely dated that guy before. They seem like they have a capacity to connect and you're like, oh, we're good. This is great. And then poof, they're gone or they've pulled way back or they're ghosting, not responding. And you're like, what happened? And it was that the attachment pieces were starting to click in and a a deeper connection was forming and it freaked him out because of attachment wounds from the past. And the reason why I was pressing into this a little bit uh, is because in our work with intensive counseling in the intensive clinical soul care model Mm -hmm. here at Restoring the Soul, uh, people oftentimes have been to one, two, three, four, five counselors. They've gone to programs. They've, you know, read books. And they say, you know, we were given all the tools. Those are often communication tools, but we're still struggling. There's still these patterns of being really triggered and anxious or clingy or withdrawing and shutting down. And it's oftentimes what we see here uh, that there's these underlying issues that can really be addressed. 
Yes, and rewired is the coolest thing ever. The fact that they can be rewired, that people can, that I'll just say, married couples can sit in a room together and go from disconnection and confusion about why are we so disconnected to just feeling more comfortably reconnected again. And I'll say that those problems, you know, like the dumb things that couples can fight about, like the kitchen counter grout color or things like that. And they'll get so super pissed about it that when their attachment is more healed and they're just more grounded and they just feel safer and they feel more seen in the other person's presence, they'll say, oh, I just don't really care about that anymore. It's so beautiful so that if you stay at the surface fight and you stay at that just very concrete, logical level, and sometimes you have to do that of, okay, well, let's take turns. She'll pick the grout and you pick the the tile or whatever. And um, that is absolutely one tool in the toolbox of just compromising. But I care so much more about that heart level and that gut level, which I've learned now in my education to call it a nervous system level of what people feel like in one another's presence and how couples can co-regulate each other so that when one's upset that um, one member of the couple can say, I'm an expert in her. I am trained in her and in what soothes this woman that I married. I know how to reach out to her and help her feel better rather than saying, I know what's going to make her mad, (laughs) throw some gas on the fire. And then the fight just burns for hours and hours and hours. That's a great phrase of I'm an expert in them. Mm-hmm. We were talking about this author yesterday, but Stan Tatkin. Mm-hmm. Um, first name is Stan, right? Yep. And he wrote, he's written extensively, but his popular book right now is Wired for Love. And when I was in Atlanta last weekend uh, speaking to a mentoring summit, about 100 leaders, and a handful of them were from a church that I've done a lot of work with. And uh, two of those pastors came up to me and said, you recommended this book just offhandedly, Wired for Love by Stan Tech, and, and it has changed my marriage and my sense of presence and confidence with, uh, with their wives. So you've done some training with that material, not directly with Stan, but with the people that are part of his organization. And um, uh, say a little bit about that book. Yeah, Stan Tatkin was trained, I think, alongside Dan Siegel. And uh, they are, um, their work overlaps a bit as far as just the, the science behind our, just our neurobiology and the, the science behind just attachment and human connection to one another. And so, yes, I went through PACT level one training, it was called, and it was just several weekends of, of really learning and, and breaking down into lots and lots of movements and not just kind of like the techniques of helping couples, um, really use their bodies, their position in the room. Um, you know, I'll have people sit in chairs and, and move closer together, or they might, I might stand them up and put them on opposite sides of the room and say, you know, you walk towards her until you feel uncomfortable inside of your skin. And then she knows that he's not going to get in trouble. We're just kind of watching and seeing what happens. And he might be able to take a few steps before his discomfort, something activates inside of him that tells him he is uncomfortable. And I say, okay, awesome. What'd you feel? And we kind of get to talk about it and break it down. And then she gets her turn and she comes all the way forward and wraps her arms around him. And he looks kind of stiff and uncomfortable. And we get to break that down and talk about that. 
And it's just this very beautiful, very amazing rewiring um, of the couple and filling them with such compassion and understanding that the other person is wired differently from them and they need some help and they need some grace um, from their partner rather than just doing a cat and mouse thing for decades throughout their relationship. They can face some of the um, some of their patterns. And actually, I, I just say the one place that I am very detail oriented because I am not detail oriented in much that has to do with the physical world of planet Earth, but where I'm an absolute detail accountant is in the emotional world and in our hearts and in just these small um, inklings and um, leadings and leanings that we feel inside of ourselves. I forgot where I was going with that. Sorry, Brian. Oh, you were talking about uh, being in the room with couples and mm-hmm. how it opens up space for them to connect based on what's happening in their nervous system. I just can't. I, t- I went far afield with the detailed part of how I am made. It made me lose my point walking across the room. Mm-hmm. So I was trained in these techniques that, oh, the, the minutia of the techniques I was, I was trained in, but also the, just kind of the, the stance and posture of the therapist in the room, which is really um, well aligned with Michael, your approach to therapy, which is just very much bringing like the therapist is a person and a human, and you're bringing your whole self into the room and so you're listening to your own heart and mind and gut and interacting with them um with your with your dear dear clients and um it's just a real um very dynamic and wonderful process and the cool thing about this approach is that it fits so nicely into intensive counseling because um it's like couples can't get to one another's hearts unless they understand what's going on in their nervous system. Mm -hmm. So folks with these kinds of issues, as we're both talking about this, it's not that they're outliers or they're a small percentage, but that everybody, even healthy couples, Mm -hmm. they're pushing each other's buttons, triggering Mm -hmm. each other. And then our nervous system uh, starts to kind of awaken or act out so to speak Mm -hmm. and once you understand what's happening in the nervous system and you can control that then you can create a connection oh and it depersonalizes it to say it's how my nervous system responds it's not well i hate you and you're an idiot and that's why my nervous system is responding this way to you or you don't care because if you really cared then you would you know you would engage with me yes yes When that person, male or female, husband or wife, might just literally be frozen. Yes, and care deeply, but be trapped and not feel like it's authentic for them to make a different move other than to sit there and watch their show. It is um, a really exciting time to be a counselor and a psychotherapist because from the start of my training almost 30 years ago till now, um, there has been so much information brought about human beings uh, and particularly what it means to be made in the image of God, Mm. that we are embodied, that we are physiological beings. And I was trained very well and by some of the best people out there uh, to have conversations about the heart and the soul and to be able to hear people's stories and to connect the dots. But to add in this whole um, idea of embodiment and neurobiology it lets people get somewhere so much more quickly uh, to have the relationship that they want. Yes, I 
love, I love what I have learned about our bodies. And it, it made such a stark contrast from how um, my training and then also my faith background was so focused on what do I understand in my brain and definitely some of what do I feel in my heart. But this third intelligence center of gut body, it's, it's really funny to me. I have so many. Um, I'm so sorry. I do not want to be sexist. I don't want to stereotype. That said, so many of my male executive leader types that roll their eyes when I say, okay, I really want you to take a second and notice where, what you feel in your body right now. Like, do you feel something in your chest as you tell me this really sad story about your dad or your wife? Do you feel something in your gut? Do you feel something in your shoulders? Um, and how I have to muscle them. I really, and I'm so, I'm really kind. I'm pretty gentle and, um, or I'm quite gentle, I will say actually. Um, but I will have to muscle them because I just know that they have a preconceived idea against this and they just think it's kind of woo-woo or kind of stupid. And um, I'll have men come back and say, okay, that was one of the best counseling sessions I've ever had in my entire life. And I'm like, mm-hmm, because you're not a counselor, so you're trying to tell me how to do the session. And mm-mm, what so are you paying for? What is it, though, that they experience that makes them feel that? Wisdom comes from the body. And discernment comes from the body and specifically the body working in conjunction with, I mean, so it's body, heart, and mind, those three centers online, um, meaning that you're aware of and have access to them. Um, so somebody can sit and be deliberating in their head over pros and cons of a decision and feel very paralyzed with fear. And when I have them sink lower, notice their emotions, then sink lower, notice your body, what's going on in your body. And they can find this settled place in the midst of their anxiety. And sometimes it's not a magic bullet, of course, because nothing is. Um, But sometimes those people will say, oh, my gosh, it's so clear. I know what I need. I know what I want, or I really, really do love her, even though I have been acting like a jerk. Um, so it's things like that. They touch into wisdom and just a knowing. I know that I know, but yeah. I can't intellectually say how I know. And the difference between believing and knowing, which mm-hmm. has spiritual implications, yeah. but the difference between making the right decision because there's a list of pros and cons and it mm-hmm. logically makes sense. Versus a deep kind of knowing that mm-hmm. is more holistic and integrated. Yes. Um, That's one of my passions for sure. So let's talk a little bit before we shift gears to intensive counseling in mm-hmm. particular uh, to the spiritual implications of this kind of deep knowing. Because, you know, maybe the most literal and common example that I see, even with a pastor or somebody who's in full-time ministry where as we start to explore their spirituality and their relationship with God, they'll say, you know, I just feel so disconnected mm-hmm. from God. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying harder than ever and I just don't feel like anyone's there. And instead of addressing that front on by mm-hmm. having a conversation about their spiritual life, and mm-hmm. that's, that's worthwhile, starting to address what's happening in them internally. Mm-hmm. And I say it this simply, and you can comment on this, uh, that if we can't be present to ourselves physically and emotionally, that it's hard to be present to God and to be aware of him. So 
say whatever you'd like just about the spiritual implications of this work that you're doing. So many things to say. I'm going to try to pick a couple. Um, one, that person. And so in my past, I would have said, oh, sin management. How can we manage your sin? What are you doing that is disconnecting you from God? That's real. That does connect you from God. But I feel like the way that God has wired me, um, uh, he started off my career with the question of, yes, but why? Why do they do it? Why do they do it? And that was just what I had to I had to follow that rabbit forever in my career. And it's been so wonderful. But anyways, um, I will have people um, really I'll just go ahead and say it. I want them to start some form of contemplative practice. And the reason I had a hard time saying that was because I've been pushed back on so many different times. But but it's really true that to sit and settle in silence inside of yourself, knowing that God lives inside of there. We are told that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Maya Angelou's last tweet before her death was something along the lines of spend time with your true self because you will find God there. And that's also what I believe about our embodiment of our created self that God dreamed up and made. And there's only one me and there's only one you. And that the Holy Spirit lives there in in um in communion with us. And so as a seminary graduate, and I am married to a very theologically savvy person, and he's a very bright person and and loves to talk through and think through um, lots and lots of issues facing the church and theology. Um, I've sat with so many very, very heady believers and I just get this visual of an orange on a toothpick, <laughs> and I'm like, your, your head is so full, but your poor little body doesn't feel anything of the beauty and connection of the all-consuming of, of our God. And so I will invite people into um, a quieter, contemplative kind of practice that grounds them more in their body and creates more space for quiet, and that in time produces really beautiful fruit of of usually people being able to connect with God. So the, rough, the okay. spiritual implications are many, but uh, one of the issues that you're saying is it's not by doing more, but by doing less and by settling in the passage in Psalm 4610 of be still and know that I'm God. That was um, very succinct. Good job, big daddy. You're more of a medium daddy. Uh, it's, uh, it's one of my gifts is taking a lot of information boiling it down, and then spitting it back in a way that it becomes a lot of information again. Coming to the big question, um, what in the world brought you to wanting to do intensive counseling? I know it's kind of crazy. I had to convince several people that are in my, I would just say they're my board of directors, um, people in my life. I've I've just named different people in my life um, uh, and given them this kind of authority in my, in my world. And I can call them together for a meeting whenever I need them. And they can call me and I'll be on their board of directors. Um, but so everybody said, okay, you're so busy. You love what you do because I had just an overrun private practice and I had just gotten my office within blocks of my home and I just knew that I was going to do this job forever and so I thought okay if I'm going to do this job for the next 40 years I want it to be close to my house and so um I was getting though um I was feeling a, a pained dissatisfaction with um 
ending my sessions at that hour mark. And I was running my sessions over and late for my next client because if something really good was happening and not that my client was being gamey and holding out to the last minute, it just takes some time um, to get through the work. Um, then I would have my client in the waiting room waiting and all of them, they're so gracious. I don't know how I've assembled such an amazing, I mean, it's an amazing caseload that I'm leaving behind and, and referring off to lots of different wonderful people. But, um, they'd say, nope, that's fine. I know how you roll. And I know that I'm often the um, recipient of those last, you know, five or 10 minutes. But so I felt like I would just scratch the surface and then say goodbye to someone for weeks sometimes. And um, the thought of being able to just sink in and spend time with people and get through history and be able to hold their history along with their present in a way that I just can't do when I'm like, okay, gosh, I saw that person about 20 days ago. Let me reread. Were they the one that, you know, had this background or that background? Um, I just am so drawn to the idea of, of really being able to enter the, the stories, walk through the story, walk through um, the depths of it and really have time to do that with people. Which is one of the huge benefits we speak here uh, with our intensive program about um, sufficient time, but limited time. And yeah. the sufficient time is roughly three hours a day, Monday mm -hmm. through Friday. And the limited time is when you begin with the end in mind and an end date. It actually mm -hmm. requires you to be much more focused and mm -hmm. selective about what you deal with. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, a, it's a powerful uh, medium. And I think one of the things that you bring to the table that I'm really excited about is that an intensive counselor has to uh, be somewhat improvisational mm -hmm. and uh, you have to have a lot of different skill sets. Mm -hmm. You're uh, a teacher and a trainer and a speaker and um, you're an Enneagram expert and a self-described growth nerd. Mm -hmm. So talk about the Enneagram just briefly, how that came to you and a little bit about how you've integrated it in your practice. And you've also spoken around the country to corporations and other groups uh, about the Enneagram. I love the Enneagram, and I tried to resist it. Um, I was actually introduced to the Enneagram in 1999. I was given an Enneagram test by someone who knew it, and um, I still remember my number was was nailed back then. And um, and I looked into it a bit, but didn't find it very remarkable. It's something it just didn't grab me. And then, just in the years that followed, I would meet Enneagram enthusiasts. And they struck me as so cultish that I said, I'm going to actually avoid getting trained in the Enneagram because those people are kind of odd and they just want to talk about it all the time at parties. And and, and so I tried to avoid are, it. People that are naming their children Enneagram. <laughs> yeah, there probably are people that are doing that. Um, and so about 10 years ago, um, a good friend of mine had decided to dive into it. And she gave me the wisdom of the Enneagram Um Rizzo Hudson's book. And um, I just fell in love. It just absolutely captivated me. It was right where I was at. I read things about myself that I thought were just Kelly Gray quirks, not an actual prototype of human being. And it completely blew my mind. And I had done so much growth work and I had done my own intensives and lots of therapy on my own and meds and supplements and just all the things um, to just keep on trying to become a more and more integrated whole human being. And um, 
it just felt like it was, um, I want to say, putting finishing touches on and ripping floorboards out of my of myself. And so when I got that enthusiastic about it, I started just weaving it into my um, my practice. Part, members of my family weren't super interested in talking about it. And so I really maintained that whole social skill thing of I will not be that lady at the party. But, and, but, 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 but they, yeah. were, they were still in recovery from your your uh, Rorschach <laughs> tests at 15. <laughs> mm-hmm. so they All those not, dream interpretations. They wouldn't be open to the Enneagram for no, those reasons. No, when you're too much of, you know, when you come double barrel at, at things, you can you kind of have to pay that debt of backing away, don't you? Um, but so I started using it on my clients because they would kind of do, you know, like they were coming to me as the expert. And so I was really open with them. I'm learning about this. And so I'm just a very, I'm a very collaborative leader. And so we would learn together. And so now that has literally amassed into years and if i see i don't know like a, a thousand hours of therapy a year um over these last several years i mean it's just been thousands of hours of working with individuals um on their enneagram through the lens of the enneagram i would say um and i've gotten to see how all the various numbers respond to stress and trauma and good times and um, when things are going well and I get to see their immaturity and their maturity and their achievements and triumphs and it um, it is extremely helpful to find out that somebody is a five because I'm not going to try to change things about them if they are a five I'm not going to change their um, their more reserved nature um, but I will help them if they feel like they truly have social anxiety. We're going to work on that and give them a skill set um, and uh, things that they need to be practicing. But you're not going to turn a five into a seven. So. so any of the nine numbers, no pun intended. So regardless of which number it is, you referred to a five. Mm-hmm. It's not that this person has to change, but it's about how they see the world and yes. experience the world. Yes. Which is why it's so helpful in the work I do as well. Mm-hmm. It's also super faddish right now I, oh I, I counted on two hands the number of Enneagram podcasts and everybody's getting certified and reading this book and that and mm-hmm. some of my dear friends are involved in that um, but it's so much more than a personality test mm-hmm. or personality inventory like mm-hmm. you know I'm an ENFP on yep. the Myers-Briggs and that tells me what my bent is mm-hmm. but the thing that's really cool about it is that it becomes a tool for growth um, that it will help you understand if you go deep enough into it what a core wound is or what the messages and things that you needed growing up uh, what was not given or what was given so talk about how you've uh, seen people press into it and use the Enneagram as a spiritual tool or emotional tool as well yeah, that is what is really, really fun about it, because um, as I referenced earlier, wisdom and discernment, those are um, just deep burning passions of mine that I see our culture is in tremendous need for. Um, so, yeah, the Enneagram at its surface, kind of like my blush with it or brush with it in 99, it was, oh, yeah, uh-huh, just another one of those. Yep. Um, but what does differentiate it is um, the complexity, the depth, the amount of information that if you start pulling the thread, whenever I teach the Enneagram, um, I give many, many cautions that it's a little bit like giving a 10 year old boy a pocket knife that without any instruction, he might do good with it. 
Um, but it's highly likely that he's not going to do good with it. And he could really stab a lot of people and hurt a lot of people. And so, um, and that's actually when I, um, when I taught at a, um, a corporation recently, the first question was, I feel like we are all 10 year old boys holding pocket knives. Can you please help us a little further with, you know, whatever <laughs> was his question. So, um, so I'm okay with it being faddish. I'm actually really, I'm, I'm happy that it is popular because we've desperately needed more emotional language to describe ourselves and to understand ourselves and to understand others and to connect better with others. We have had a really impoverished emotional vocabulary as a culture. And so the Enneagram is um, downloading more language to people. And when people are immature and they are more ego-driven, they are going to use it to tease others or to um, harm others or, you know, be mean to others, um, profile them, stereotype them, or use it as an excuse for their bad behavior. But if you pull the thread a little bit further, what you will find is... um, it names the box that you are stuck in. It is not sticking you in it. I mean, we are stuck. I mean, we, we our, our struggles are deep. And the Enneagram helps name our struggles and describe what those struggles are. And the problem with then having your struggles described for you or your signature sin sins um, is that now it has entered into consciousness and that is where you have a whole lot more responsibility to take so when I'm ignorant of my flaws and the ways that I have hurt others and been a pain to live with um, then I'm not I can't be accountable for something that I don't know or don't understand but the more I learn the Enneagram the more busted I am on my next levels of growth work and so you can kind of never be done with the growth work that the Enneagram lays out for you. Mm. I love how you said that, that it doesn't stick you in a box. It uh, helps you see the box that you're stuck in and that we all are stuck in a box, even though we may think we're not. Uh, again, it gives data that it, it's not so much just information, but something that can resonate. You know, you talked about how our culture lacks language, especially in the church. We lack language Mm -hmm. for emotional health. Mm -hmm. And a big part of restoring the soul is that you can't separate spiritual health from emotional health because, you know, the soul, classically understood, is body, mind, will, Mm -hmm. and emotions. And I would add to that the inmost being kind of at the core of concentric circles. Mm -hmm. So our emotions and uh, our thoughts are all intertwined into this idea of soul. But um, I I really see in the circles that I'm in, and I kind of live in a dance between left and right circles with a lot of the people that I work with, uh, that on both sides of that, people that are followers of Jesus, it seems like there's a waking up and that people are getting language, and that's really beginning to create integration in the church. Yes, when I graduated seminary, um, I was still kind of, you know, going to school with 
concurrently with people who are becoming pastor pastors they're getting their masters of divinity um it really kind of takes that profession and knocks it off of its pedestal as a little young therapist sitting there and watching all these mostly men some women um but mostly men who are going to school to become pastors but still upon graduation i think i still was holding on to this mentality of you could be this amazing spiritual leader but not very emotionally intelligent and quickly through the first few years of my work, I I started proclaiming, and I can take a while before I start proclaiming things. I really kind of have to absorb for a while. Um, but I really started proclaiming, I am sorry, emotional growth is spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is emotional growth. You cannot be an emotional idiot. You can't be just... Um, a disaster to work with. Um, you can't treat people terribly. You can't treat your barista terribly and then go and be a spiritual giant. Um, if you are, it's, it's a paper fire. It's not a, it's not interior beauty. Well said. Love it. Couldn't agree more. Uh, makes me think of wanting to do an episode or a conversation just around emotional intelligence because I've heard that come up a lot. Yes, I'm so grateful that that's becoming so popular in the corporate world because now we've gotten a lot of great data and there's a lot of data out of Harvard talking about how um, this emotional, the emotional intelligence piece is what really does drive a lot of bottom line um, just growth and success in businesses. And so now we have um, people paying more attention to those intangibles and not just, okay, we need to just produce, make more, sell more, make more money. Yeah. And the number one predictor in one study of successful executive leadership was emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yes. We are out of time, but I'm so glad to have the opportunity to talk with you. This has been a really fun conversation. Uh, makes me want to have more conversation with the microphone turned on. But um, again, welcome to Restoring the Soul and really looking forward to collaborating and working together as we partner to see people and couples made whole. Mm, me too. Thanks so much, Michael. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com.